You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I received in my mailbox a book with a letter. The letter actually had a little diagram attached to it that said Ed Rendell and Chuck Marone. And it, it located us both on this centrist spectrum of the liberal conservative poll. It was interesting because Ed Rendell, I have called the anti-Chuck. And the idea that we would both be in the same place was quite provocative. I'm not going to reveal what the rest of the letter said because we're going to talk to the author of this letter and a book called The Structure of Political Positions, Examining the Spatial Construct at the Heart of Our Partisan Calculations. Blake Pagenkopf. Blake, welcome to Strong Guns Podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. Well, thanks, Dick. I really appreciate you inviting me. I've listened to your podcast for many years. It's an honor to be able to talk to you. That means a lot. I actually heard you on uh, Jim Kunstler's podcast, and you mentioned me specifically in Strong Towns a couple of times. I've actually listened to that podcast like three times because I'm like, this guy is talking to my heart. Like he's explaining something that is really fascinating to me and I'm learning something from it. So it was, it was really cool to get the book and then to go through your ideas as they're presented here. And then now to be able to chat with you. So likewise, I admire uh, the stuff that you're doing. This podcast, we're recording before the election, but it's going to come out after the election. I wanted to do it that way because I feel like we're going to be able to talk without people hearing it through that left-right partisan lens, because we're actually going to push back on that a little bit. I want to start this, though, by asking you a couple personal questions. And, And the first one is how you're holding up in this world, I feel like every time we get closer to the election day, this you know one-dimensional space that we're in becomes such a central part of our existence. For someone who is trying to think of this more spatially, that has to be a deep frustration for you. How do you hold up in these times heading into something like this? Well, you know, I've been thinking about these ideas for close to seven years now. I actually find the dynamic much more interesting than I used to. The parts of our political language that used to kind of raise my hackles or get me frustrated, it's a different set of words now that I'm kind of on the lookout for where I interpret things differently. And so, you know, I'm looking in different places for kind of the different developments that happen in political events. So in some ways, you know, obviously, a lot of Americans are concerned about the direction things are going, and it seems like that may be the one thing that we all agree on is right. that you know there's definitely some form of dysfunction going on in our society. But I actually see a lot of positive signs too, kind of beneath the surface. Strong towns being one of them. You know, once you start to look at things with a different perspective, I think it's a little bit easier to see those positive developments. I appreciate that. You said you've been working on this for seven years. What got you started with this way of thinking? You know, there's that brilliant Hemingway line, you know, how did you go bankrupt first gradually, then suddenly? Right. That's kind of the way that these ideas came to me. 
what I initially considered about these ideas was were things that a lot of people in America are considering. For a long time, I was I kind of moved toward the camp that America really isn't built on the left-right spectrum, that that's kind of a narrative that's been constructed, and there's actually more of a top-down system. And, you know, a lot of people have referenced that. We see it in terms like the establishment, the elites, the 1%, the duopoly, the oligarchy. But I just couldn't convince myself that the left-right, you know, or their synonyms, liberal and conservative, I couldn't convince myself that that spectrum didn't have some core elements of reality to it. So that was kind of the gradually phase for me. I, I had these two competing frameworks for the political system in my mind, and I actually didn't really realize that I was all that conscious of it. Um, and they were just sitting there. And then I just happened to listen to a podcast where somebody used the phrase diametrically opposed yeah, the people that they had said that they were diametrically opposed to, they actually had a lot of commonalities with that group. They weren't in full agreement, but they obviously weren't in complete disagreement either from what I had heard. And if the person hadn't used that phrase diametrically opposed, I don't think that my background in architecture would have triggered a new way of thinking. But when I started thinking about, well, what if they, you know, when you talk about the phrase diametrically opposed, you're talking about a circle. There's not, it's not like a metaphor that applies to a lot of different things. Right. So when I started to think, well, you know, if you put that person's position on a circle, who would they actually be diametrically opposed to? And where would the folks be that they think they're diametrically opposed to that they're actually not? And that kind of started a flood of new ideas in my thinking about the way that we use language and the way that we can often misinterpret it without knowing it. Then I started thinking about deeper structures that sit below our political language and how they impact the way that we view the world. I want to get to that circle, but I actually feel like the way you set it up in this book is, is genius. And it might just be genius for me. <laughs> As I was reading this, I'm like, this is a person who is speaking to me and the way my mind works. So I feel like you and I could hang out for days and really find each other's company very easy to keep. You start with Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic way of, of viewing the universe and then the, the, the transition to Copernicus and not so much the science part of it, but the reframing of it. Can you talk about that reframing of it as humans and humanity and like the earth at the center of the universe and now it's actually different than that? Like, what, what did that do to the way we thought about the world around us? What you're really bringing in to the conversation is Thomas Kuhn. Are you familiar with yes, his work, read, the, uh, yes. the Structure of Scientific Revolutions? Absolutely. I wasn't familiar with him when I first started thinking about all these things. And when I wrote my first book, I ended up writing that book in reverse because I started with the circle and I thought, oh, I've got an idea here. It's fairly simple and straightforward. You know, I'll write about it and I'll be done. But it ended up being like an archaeological dig where there was something below that that I had to explain. And then there was another layer below that. And I felt like, you know, when am I going to get to bedrock with this idea? Right. And I thought that I was there. I started framing things in terms of very basic concepts like conflict and discourse and dialogue and decision making in our collective 
society, you know, societal problems. And I thought I was there. I found a freelance editor in Manhattan. I sent the book to her. And after she read the first draft, she called me up. We had a long conversation. And her first comment was, I kept expecting to turn the page and have you talk about Thomas Kuhn. How come you didn't talk about Thomas Kuhn? Uh-huh. And I said, you know, who's Thomas Kuhn? So she explained <laughs> to me about the structure of scientific revolutions. The theory that he outlines in that book was brilliant. Yes. I borrowed the Ptolemaic analogy from him. Mm-hmm. And what he describes is a set of stages that a basic framework goes through. So the idea of a paradigm shift was unknown before he wrote that book. And now obviously it's deeply embedded in our culture. And what he talks about with paradigms is that initially a framework is really a consensus that the scientists in a given branch agree on. And there are objective components to that. And there are also subjective things that can't really be proven true or false. And that framework works really well for long periods of time. But at some point, the framework gets outgrown and anomalies develop. And as those anomalies build up, then you see the scientists kind of dividing into factions. They become partisan and polarized and you know, a lot of things that we're seeing in our political system right now. I'm going to pause just to, to put an emphasis on that point. In science, which is not as maybe abstract as politics or economics, but actually is dealing with very rigorous mathematics, you see factions created where they have exactly. different views of reality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's supposedly this objective pursuit, but Kuhn changed our perception of that and showed how there are very subjective elements to it. Right. Not to put you too much off course, but I've struggled with the the meme lately or the the idea that like I believe science. I kind of know politically what people are trying to say. You know, I'm with this faction or that. But for people who are serious about science, the idea of like believing science is kind of like, well, I believe the scientific method and the process, but when you actually are delve into science, there's no belief in science. I mean, there's like factions all over the place and people who have worldviews of one way and another and time will bear out who's correct. But belief in science is a belief in chaotic narrative sometimes, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting the, the way the dynamics play out. Right. So keep going, please. I'm sorry. Well, I think, you know, what happens after that phase is kind of where my book comes in and why I started talking about, you know, Copernicus and Kepler and those guys, because what happens during this long phase of dysfunction is that outsiders come along or newcomers come along and they propose new frameworks that are intended to replace the old framework that is clearly not working anymore. And usually a lot of those are wrong. And so you kind of get into the big or the little bets theory that you talk about. Right. Where, you know, a lot of these new ideas, they just don't work. When the idea comes along that does work, it usually is so far out of the mainstream thought that it seems to be false on its face. Right. And it gets rejected by the scientists in that branch. And then you get into the whole you know, science advances one funeral at a time scenario. And you go back to 
um, the Hemingway description of the change happens very gradually and then it happens suddenly. Right. So, you know, really the ideas I'm talking about are, I'm kind of surprised that there's not a larger number of people that are saying, look, our paradigm is broken. Mm -hmm. We need to shift to a better way of framing our discourse about the conflicts that we have in our political system. And my idea might be one of those little bets that fails and, you know, we move on to something else or, you know, it may have some legs and, and, you know, it's all of these things have to be vetted. When you're looking at the Ptolemaic model of the universe, the idea that the planets orbit around the earth and the sun goes around the earth, all these scientists, you know, all these people looking at this going, okay, well, this makes perfect sense from what we can see. But now we start to see a little bit more and we start to observe a little bit more and all these data points fall outside of that description. And you have Copernicus comes along and says, hey, uh, what if the earth orbits around the sun and everything else orbits around the sun? And all of a sudden, like the data fits better to that model. What you've pointed out here in ways that and I think this is what makes it powerful in one sense is revolutionary in another sense is obvious, right? Like the best, the best ideas are obvious. Once you see them pointed out to you, you've described the left, right paradigm as just like, there's too many data points that fall outside of that. In the letter you sent me, you've got Ed Rendell and Chuck Marone, you know, Ed Rendell and Chuck Marone should not be the same data point on a political spectrum yet with a left-right political spectrum, we are the same data point in a sense. Can you t describe a little bit the spectrum we have now, the way we talk about this, but also why that's incomplete? What are we failing to grasp in the current spectrum and paradigm? Like, what are those data points that should make people who study political science say, we have the wrong descriptive model? It kind of starts with language, the way to understand what's wrong with the current model. And what I'm trying to say in my books is that there is a structure below language that we need to look at that actually guides the language and determines which words that we think are acceptable. So if you look at some of the most common terms that we use every day in political language, it's words like, uh, left, center, right, liberal, conservative, polarized, uh, partisan, nonpartisan, spectrum, position, movement. The majority of those terms have a spatial component to them. And so one of the kind of conceptual leaps that I take is that that's not an accident. If you take the visual components of those terms and you put them on a piece of paper, they arrange themselves logically. And what you get is a simple horizontal line segment that has three roughly overlapping zones. You've got an area on the left where the liberals congregate. You've got an area on the right where the conservatives hang out. And then you've got an area in the middle where the centrists are or the moderates. You know, moderate is another it's the same word as middle, more or less. Right. So if you take that model and you investigate it spatially, I mean, I know you've got a background in planning. You've got an advanced degree in planning. My background's in architecture. Yeah. There's, you know, if I didn't come up with these ideas, somebody with a visual arts background would have. 
because when when you're in school, when you're up in front of a jury of professors, you have to justify the logic of whatever you've put together. And so I take that one dimensional line segment and I apply a series of questions to it to see if its logic works. And what happens is there are a number of positions of either individuals or movements or institutions or other entities that just don't fit. My view is that the Strong Towns movement doesn't fit. There are a lot of other examples that don't fit. Is Julian Assange left or right? Right. His opponents pose as centrists, but some of their ideas, it's difficult to come up with a definition of centrism that supports some of those policies. Movements like homeschooling or, you know, the vaccination safety yeah. issue. Right. They've been characterized as either far left or far right by some folks. But if you try to plot those positions on that horizontal line, you know, I know several people who are or have serious concerns about vaccinations and they come from all different left, right, right. orientations. Yep. So there's not a logical location for a lot of different entities. So I took that and said, well, if you think about the word position, it's the same term that we use in GPS or in any field team sport. So a position in the GPS you know, setup is the specific location of a point on planet Earth. And planet Earth is a three-dimensional sphere. If you think about a football player's position, it is a specific point prior to the snap of the ball on a rectangle. And a rectangle is a two-dimensional right. location. Yep. If you think about a political position, the way that it's structured right now, it is the location of a point on this one-dimensional line. You know, election night's coming up. Now, most election nights, you hear the pundits say, you know, America is a center-right country, America center-left, America is polarized. Those are all assertions about the distribution of positions on this one-dimensional line. So what I'm saying in my books is that the one-dimensional line doesn't work. We have to shift to a two-dimensional model because it will clarify some of the distinctions and it will include... Uh, many of the folks that are in, in some ways deemed to be illegitimate, you know, not legitimate positions within the current system. Yeah. I basically orient all of the things that don't fit do seem to fit if you place political positions on a two-dimensional circle. You know, they're directly on the circle. They're not on an axis or on you know, a larger grid or something like that. If they are directly on a circle, then... Things seem to make more sense that way. Well, you start with the horizontal liberal conservative line, but then you add the other dimension, which is, I think you call it centralist and localist or citizenist, or how, how do you define that in that the other dimension? The core characteristic of the left-right line is it's really about our values. In fact, I've, I've once in a while I hear you say, you know, my values might be different than yours, but we can still talk, things like right. that. Right. Yes. Liberal versus conservative is always about values. So it's a very subjective orientation. It's matters of the conscience. It's affairs of the heart. It's more oriented toward 
you know, mythological issues or religious issues, things that can't be proven true, nor can they be proven false. And so that's kind of what liberal and conservative sort to when you shift to a two-dimensional model. The other axis, when you start thinking about up and down, is about power. And it's a much more objective, practical way of looking at the world. It's much more data-based. So there are any number of terms that you could use to describe the top pole and the bottom pole. I tend to use the words centralized power or centralist for the top and citizen-based power for the bottom, but you could use any number of terms. I'm not really wedded to any of them because I feel like you need to focus on the geometry first. You could call the top concentrated power. Uh, you could call the bottom self-organizing, emergent, decentralized, distributed. I'm going to pause here and just reiterate to people who are listening too. You're very clear throughout this book that your goal is to describe a system not to advocate for a position on it. And so, you know, as you're describing this, you're taking Ed Rendell and myself. And just for people who don't know Ed Rendell, he is a former governor of Pennsylvania. He was an infrastructure cabinet person, I think, in the Clinton administration. He's, he's been basically like the big, let's go build big infrastructure project guy, lobbyist for decades now. And on your left-right spectrum, the, the line, you have him and I together. But as soon as you put in this other dimension of top-down power versus citizen-led power or centralizing versus localizing or what have you, now we do wind up on the opposite ends of what is a circle you know, encompassing these two different poles. That's a powerful insight, right? Yeah, you know, the biggest jump where you know, I kind of differ from conventional political analysis is that if you shift to a new model, then you're re almost required to come up with new vocabulary to yeah. describe your positions. Yeah. And so you know, there's a hierarchy there between the visual and the verbal. So there really wasn't a way for you to describe your differences between you know, your positions and Edwin Dell's in the old model. Right. And what you were forced to resort to was calling yourself nonpartisan, which is essentially <laughs> yes. saying, I am not a part of this model, which was true. Opti-note, right. Yeah. But on a new model, there's a capacity for drawing distinctions in our language that wasn't available on the horizontal one-dimensional model. You describe the, the left-right model as one of the heart or one of morals or one of that kind of worldview. I think what you're suggesting is that Ed Rendell and I probably are not that far away from each other in terms of like our objectives or the things we would prioritize or the things we're trying to accomplish. But the means in which we're going about it are diametrically opposed. They are antithetical to each other. Or what was the word you used before? They're polar opposites? Uh, yeah, diametrically opposed. Diametrically is, opposed, it's, yeah. It's the same thing as uh, 180 degrees apart. You right. Know, they both reference a, a circle. Yeah. yeah, I think you're exactly correct on your assessment of that. Yeah. When you describe that, when you sent me this letter, and then when I, I went through the book, it actually brought me some comfort. And I think this is maybe what you're getting at, too, is that these models should bring us comfort to explain, you know, why I felt like I don't fit in this model, like I opted out, like I'm not part of this left, right pair, I'm nonpartisan, or I'm not like I'm, I'm not participating in this. But the way you described it actually brought me some comfort. 
I want to tell you a little story and have you react to it. In the early 2000s, as I was searching for answers, you know, trying to find bedrock in my own way, the, the way you described, I kept coming up with this group of new urbanists. Whenever I needed to find an answer, I found myself back at the new urbanist table with a group who had the answer. And my problem was, is I was not an urbanist. I was a small town rural engineer. I was not a liberal. And these guys seemed to be very like liberal, progressive focused. I kept rejecting them. And then I finally went to one of their gatherings that I went to a Congress. And I remember I went surreptitiously, like I, I had signed up, but I didn't make any connections. I sat by myself. I sat in the back of the room and listened. And the whole time I listened, I'm like, these are my people. Like, I love these people. Like, this is great. But my whole like worldview, like if I went back to Brainerd, Minnesota and started talking about the new urbanism, they would kick me out of town. Like, I can't do this. You actually explain why that happened. I was looking at them as like the opposite of me on a one-dimensional space. But in reality, they're very, very close to me in the multidimensional or the circle that you describe. Am I describing something that, that you hope happens to other people? That is the natural outcome of seeing things in a more sophisticated way of placing them on a slightly more complex model is that you draw distinctions that you weren't able to draw before. I've really been interested lately in some of the recent events because I think throughout the 20th century, People who, whose orientation would generally place them low on the circle, they were the ones who suffered the most from the left-right divide because people who would seem to be, would seem to have a lot in common with them, they would say, you know, well, no, you know, they're, they're far left, I'm far right, so we can't have anything in common. Right. I'm seeing that breaking down in a lot of current events. One of them is the... Uh, the intellectual dark web. Have you been, Yep. you know, that kind of informal group that kind of jokingly named themselves? Right. There are a lot of uh, lower left to lower right connections occurring in that group where, you know, some pretty high powered intellectuals are saying, you know, we have a lot in common. And, you know, I don't think they're framing it the way that, that you and I are discussing today, but organically, there seem to be more people connecting the way that you did with the new urbanists to intuitively understand somehow we're not supposed to have the same thing in common, but really their differences in values really aren't that large compared to my differences in values and our approaches are very similar. It's funny because oftentimes I feel like our narrative says in this line, this horizontal line, you can't associate with someone who, you know, it, with the intellectual dark web, one of the things that's fascinating about it is you get this guilt by association. So you might be like left of center, but if you talk to someone who's right of center, you're giving them a platform or endorsing their views or what have you. And the reality is, is on your circle, the new urbanism, I, there's less distance between us than there very is close. between me and Ed Rendell. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Right. Here's the thing that I found the most powerful about your whole book and, and where I actually, I put a post-it note in and I circled it and I'm like, this is, this is ridiculously powerful. And I don't know if you recognize how powerful this is even. The whole discussion of the BIOS 
And the idea of a BIOS being the system that boots things up, can you describe what a BIOS is, how it works and how it relates to what you're trying to accomplish with this book? When I got to that, I'm like, that put everything into context for me. Well, it's kind of ironic because I didn't know what a BIOS was in my computer until it crashed and I got a blue screen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and working with the text to try to get things going again, I, I found out what a BIOS was. And when you turn on you know, your laptop or your PC, it is a little piece on the motherboard that has the simplest programming in the entire computer. It's, it's very simple language. And so what you have is this simple element is like the gateway that all of the complex elements require before they can get started. And if something goes wrong in that simple element, then nothing else is gonna work right. So, you know, our language, there's value to our political scientists coming up with eight syllable words like theoconservatism or communitarianism. I don't wanna disparage their approach because you need to get to that level of complexity and sophistication in discussing certain issues. But if you don't have the basic paradigm structured correctly, those complex concepts really won't make sense the way they're supposed to. So you have to get the BIOS programmed correctly first. So the analogy I'm making is that the simple spatial model at the heart of our partisan calculations functions as the BIOS for all political discourse and all understanding of conflict in our society. I'm thinking about our political body like booting up and booting up with an incorrect BIOS. And all of a sudden it's like every program we write has to be written on this left-right paradigm. And to me, the way I'm reading your book is you're saying, let's reboot with a different BIOS that has not only a left-right paradigm, but a centralizing, localizing paradigm. And this BIOS will create, instead of a, a one-dimensional space, it will create a two-dimensional space where you, you now sit on a circle. And, and I feel like what you're asking us to do with a still very simple paradigm, because a circle is a very simple geometric shape. I mean, it's not a difficult thing to comprehend. You're asking us to embrace a world that is much richer and much fuller and, and it has not just you know, like more dimension to it, but, but actually has much depth and, and breadth to it than the world we now inhabit. Is that the vision? I mean, is that, is that what you're trying to get us rebooted into? Yeah, I guess that kind of goes back to your first question about how do I feel about current events? Yeah. What I, what I see is a world that does have that breadth and freshness and richness, but we're having a tough time recognizing that. So, for example, I think I've been in a Strong Towns member since your first membership drive, and I consider it to be a very important movement. But in some ways... I also consider it to be an important component in a larger movement, you know, almost like a meta movement. Yeah. And I would add similar movements would be, uh, for example, permaculture or functional medicine, local sourcing, 
I think the work that Adam Taggart and Chris Martinson are doing over at Peak Prosperity, you guys are kind of swimming in the same direction. I totally agree. Yes. And, and some of the recent developments, even like something like the Joe Rogan podcast, mm-hmm. I see a lot of folks that their understanding of where they want things to go are very consistent with a much wider movement. But on the left-right model, it's very difficult for any of those ideas to be considered legitimate. Somehow they're, they're pushed into this secondary status where they're not given full membership and the rights to participate in the partisan discourse. Right. And I don't really blame the people at the top who don't want to have that discourse because everybody's going to represent their views on the, on the public square. Mm-hmm. So it really, you know, there's no reason for anyone in these movements to feel like a victim. It's, you can be empowered by switching to language that is a clearer description of what your actual political views are. I feel like the bios you're trying to bump us into actually creates more opportunity for people to cooperate and work together when they're not today. I'll give an example that maybe goes back to 2008 or 2009. I remember discussions about the Tea Party and about Occupy Wall Street and how they had so much in common, yet they were really, you know, in a sense, politically diametrically opposed. They're the, they're the polar opposites. And, and there was th- these frames that were brought out like, well, sometimes you become so extreme, it just wraps back into itself. And I remember people saying that. And I, I remember myself being more of a Tea Party kind of person because I come from a more conservative slant. But listening to the Occupy Wall Street people saying, I think they have a lot of legitimate things they're talking about. Fast forward to today, I don't know what the political analog of Black Lives Matter would be. I don't think it's I don't think it's white supremacy by any stretch. I think it's something else. But you know, Black Lives Matter is not something that I myself as a political movement am naturally attracted to. Yet because of your framework and because I've stepped out of the left-right divide, I found myself able to listen to them and define a lot of things in what they're talking about that seem very close to what I'm trying to do. They're very much about localism, local decision-making, empowering local groups. How would your paradigm allow us to work more cooperatively? And I think maybe have more fruitful disagreements as well. I mean, to me, like a disagreement with Ed Rendell makes a lot more sense when we can frame it the way you're framing it than than the way that I've kind of been forced to frame it up to this point. Is this a framework for actually better decision-making and cooperation and, uh, you know, functioning of our system? Yeah, I think it is. That's one thing I've been trying to figure out about, you know, some of the events of 2020. You know, I wish we had better journalists who were giving us better information because a lot of it's difficult to see where the funding is coming from from a lot of for a lot of these, and it's difficult to see how they're organized, whether they're top down or or truly organic. So I have a tough time making a judgment on some of these newer issues because I just can't tell what their structure is at this point. But 
you know, if you kind of take it out to the larger issues, I saw an interview with Joe Rogan a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, he's been under attack from certain elements. You know, he's got this, he wasn't speaking about the Spotify issues at the time. He said something like, it's really weird, up is down and down is up. And I've been a liberal my whole life. And I feel like I'm being attacked by the liberals. Right. So now I don't he's... know where I stand. Right. Um, and if you look at him, he's the, you know, one of the public figures now who really encourages conversation between all elements of the political spectrum, but primarily across the two lower quadrants. You know, he'll bring in, he'll bring in conservatives, but they generally have a citizen empowering orientation when, when they speak to him. Right. So I don't know if that speaks to your, to your question or not. But. No, it does. Let's go back pre-Trump. So let's go back to Mitt Romney and, 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 uh, and Barack Obama in the presidential election of 2012. I remember one of the things that was said often, and I kind of believe this because I, you know, I never voted for Barack Obama, but I liked him. I thought he was a decent man. I thought he was a, a decent person. But the kind of thing that was put out there is, there's not a lot of difference between him and Mitt Romney in terms of policy, what they'll do. And I remember people being, there's some people who put that out as like a statement of fact, but all the people who were deeply embedded in the system saw this huge difference between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the left or I'm on the right. And there's a, there's a huge difference. Like this election will determine everything about our future. And there were people like me who sat back and said, I, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, I see some differences and some areas of emphasis and maybe who they would nominate for the Supreme Court or what have you, but I don't see a ton of difference between these two. What was I tapping into at that point? I mean, it was, was I wrong or, or I feel like you're, you're confirming that maybe I wasn't that wrong? You know, if you plot both of their positions on the circle, they're both very close to the top. You know, I, I tend to think of it in terms of the DNC and the RNC. You know, they're perpetually located in the centralist parts of the circle. But I think what you're tapping into is really a longer term issue that's occurring within our society. Because, you know, like going back to the Tea Party, they, they revered the founding fathers, you know, they named themselves after the founding fathers movements, they always referenced Jefferson or Franklin, those guys. But if you look at the way political power shifted. And I would say, you could also say that this is kind of the way the distribution of positions shifted on the circle from really from the civil war through the 20th century, there was a migration of power and a migration in the belief of where power should be that moved upward on the circle. So there's really kind of two kinds of conflict that occur. There's the natural conflict that we've discussed of being diametrically opposed where two people are at opposite ends of the circle and they're going to have very different views about what the right decision is. But there is a, and I think you can explain a lot of the current discord with the other kind of conflict because there is so much power entrenched in particular institutions now. And those institutions they're on both the right and the left side, but they are all near the top of the circle. So, for example, you've got the Central Intelligence Agency, Central 
being centralism, central bank, the Federal Reserve. The legacy corporations are all top-down institutions. Now you've got social media, which is near the top of the circle, you know, Facebook, Twitter, um, Google. And you also have the institutions of government, all the federal agencies. So there is so much power concentrated at the top of the circle now that it's almost like uh, a winner-takes-all battle. You know, it's like the two farmers fighting over the goose that lays the golden egg. So it does create a situation where it's winner-take-all and, you know, you feel like if the if there's just a little bit of disparity in the votes, then we're going to lose everything here. That's why movements like yours are so important because it's beginning to pull the center of gravity, you know, the, the distribution of positions lower on the circle where it's, I think it will make it easier for all of us to talk to each other. And if we can bring some of these decisions down to our local communities and to our individual choices without making them, you know, some president signs an executive order to decide how we're all going to live, then I think that we can move back toward some kind of a a balance in the way that we make decisions and the way we interpret our conflicts. It feels like one of the things that you're arguing, and again, I'll just reiterate that you, you're very clear in this book that you're not putting yourself on, on this circle or arguing for one you know, place being superior than another. You're, you're trying to create a description of how we have discourse. It feels though like one of the arguments that you're making is that there's a whole group of people who would be the opposite of the, the centralizing group that exist in this paradigm that's not really represented by the current political discourse. If the RNC and the DNC are up at the top of the circle, there's a whole bunch of people who are left and right, both uh, that are at the bottom of the circle that really have no outlet for real political participation in this system we've created. Is that a, is that a fair reaction? That is exactly right. And the way things are structured today, the people at the top of the circle control most of the resource decisions in America. So I did a calculation once, this is a few years ago, and I calculated the amount of money that Ed Rendell had control of as governor of Pennsylvania and how much you had control of as the head of Strong Towns. And I think I came to the conclusion that you would have to get like 50 bucks from every person in America to be yeah. able to control as many resources as he does. <laughs> so, you know, things are skewed against those who take positions at the bottom of the circle now. But I think that there are times when you have to move towards centralist structures. And there are other times when you need to allow the citizens to self-organize in the way that they see fit. The partisan statement I would make is I would like to see balance come back in that where both sides have a fair shot at putting their ideas on, you know, into the public discourse. What do you think comes next for you in this conversation? I mean, you've, you've put this book together. I hope that everyone goes out and buys it. I'm, I'm going to say this, and I hope this doesn't offend you in any way. This took me 45 minutes to read. It took me, you know, days of long walks to think through it, but it, it was very easy. It was very accessible. You know, you've got 200 pages in here, but there's diagrams and limited text on each page. It's like a thought process to go through. 
I read the whole book in 45 minutes, and then I probably spent days and days walking around thinking about different aspects of it. I hope everybody buys it. What's next for you? Like, what do you think? And maybe it's an unfair question, but these ideas now are out there in the world. What, what do you hope happens? Where do, you, where do you see this going next? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of the fourth turning theory by Strauss and Howe. And the things that they predicted when they wrote that book in the late 90s have tracked pretty much true to form. There's another one where the people who were first talking about that were right of center. And so now that has been polarized too, in a way that I think is unhelpful because it is really a, it really is a, that bottom of the circle kind of insight, yeah. which, yeah. you know, people left of the spectrum. I've heard talk about it a lot too. Charles Hugh Smith, who I would say is left of center, but yet at the bottom of the circle very much. Yeah. Uh, has Lower left quadrant. Yeah. yeah. You know, the last interview I saw with Neil Howe, he said that he thought that we were going to see kind of the final phase of this fourth turning last until close to 2030. So that means, you know, the rest of the decade is going to be a lot like 2020, where there's going to be chaos and we're going to be trying to figure things out. So, you know, I never envisioned myself writing a book. I wrote a much longer book, The Great Conflation, and it was just clearly too long. And so I really put the same themes into the one that you read, The Structure of Political Positions. And, you know, a couple of months ago, I started a blog to talk about these ideas but I'm really just one citizen out of 330 million. I'm kind of following your lead. You know, it's, it's up to us citizens to say, if I have something to contribute, I'm going to speak my piece. And you know, if people think there's value to it, then, then they can use it and take it where they think they see fit. Uh, if they don't, that's fine too. And so I'll just continue to put the ideas out there and see where it goes. But, some hope that they can navigate the turmoil that we're currently experiencing. Well, Blake Pagankov, I'm going to call you the, the Copernicus of political uh, <laughs> discourse. I do hope that we move from the, uh, the earth centric model to the, uh, a more correct model of our discourse. <laughs> Where can people read your blog and read your stuff? Uh, the blog is called thegreatconflation.com. And the books are on Amazon. I actually got your first book too. While I found value in it, this, this little book here is powerful and it's cheap. It's easily shareable. People will read this. I hope that everyone listening here now goes and gets a copy and passes it around because it has brought me a lot of peace in understanding you know, a, a model that I think better fits the world as I understand it. But I also feel like it's brought a certain level of harmony too, Blake, because there are people who I think our left-right paradigm would want me to be opposed to that I like, that I love, that I find you know, very close to my heart. I would hope that we could create more kindredship, you know, more cooperation, more understanding. And I think your framing of the world, your bios that you're trying to reboot us into will do that. Well, I appreciate that. I think the first exposure I had to your work was when you discussed the concept of Strode. Yeah. And that really stuck with me because the where I work, that's a real issue, the difference between a street and a road. And I've been following your work ever since. You've been coming up with some great concepts that, that clarify reality for me. So the fact that you appreciate 
what I do and see the value in it means a lot to me. Well, thank you. We're, we uh, mutually admire each other then. I, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Let's keep in touch. Thanks for being a member. And if you ever want to chat again, I, we're going to run this right after the election. So I, I think this will help. We don't know what's going to happen, you and I, uh, but I think this will help people think through it and then maybe take the next two years, four years to reevaluate life on a circle as opposed to a, a one-dimensional line and maybe become more comfortable with the world. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you. It'd be fun to do it again. Likewise. Thanks, Blake. Thank you, Chuck. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Sounds great. All right. Bye-bye. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.